If you have your Bible, I would like for, to invite you to open it to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verses 11 all the way down to 19 this morning. Um, after we get done with this sermon today, we're going to take a three-week break. A three-week break, and we're going to do a short series on biblical generosity. Uh, a three-week series on generosity. Pastor Kyle is going to launch that for us next week. Um, and then he, uh, he and Haley decided that they were going to have a baby. And so I'll preach the last two of that generosity series um, by, Kyle, by Kyle and God's grace and sovereignty. Um, so, uh, so you want to be here for that, just to hear a, a, some sermon series on biblical generosity and giving. This morning, my title of my sermon is Seeking Perfection in a Filtered World. Seeking perfection in a filtered world. Now, if you've been around Center Church long enough, then you will, you will know that I am a, a strong opponent to social media. Uh, I am not a fan of social media. I don't have any social media. And I have this conviction on two levels, on a theological level, but also on a techno, technical level. Now, here's what I will say for you, all right? That doesn't mean that you're in sin if you're using these platforms, so don't be like, oh, Pastor Jeremy's not using it, so I must be a sinner because I'm using it. All right? that's, not, that's not what I'm saying at all. All I'm saying is I just want you to be informed about what social media is and specifically about how it works. Okay? So one of the things, one of the reasons that I, I don't like social media platforms is because uh, I have a coined a phrase called the social media illusion. The social media illusion. Social media allows you to... Kind of hide yourself. So, for example, take, take picture sharing social media platforms like Instagram or Snapchat. You take a picture of yourself. We typically, we have coined this phrase, the selfie. You take the selfie and when you look at that picture, you see some, maybe some imperfections. Right? You, you see, like when I take a, when I, when Katie takes pictures of me, I see a lot more gray in the beard than there used to be. But the good news is that these social media platforms have allowed you the opportunity to create, to put on filters. And so you can filter yourself, you can alter your image, you can alter your picture in order to pass along to your digital friends. I use the word friends very lightly in social media world, and again, that's my own conviction. So what typically happens is this is what I call the social media illusion, that we, we put out something that's not really there. We put out a picture of perfection because when we, when we doctor the image, we, we are doctoring the imperfections that we either see or that we perceive that we see. And this just doesn't happen on social media platforms like Instagram and Snapchat. It also happens on Facebook. Facebook, instead of taking pictures, which you can share pictures on Facebook, by the way, but people typically, many people on, on their Facebook accounts will put off the image of a perfect life, will they not? The perfect marriage, the perfect children. Man, if my children resembled what we show them on Facebook, praise Jesus. <laughs> the perfect career, the perfect amount of happiness. See, we live in our social media digital age. We live seeking perfection in the social media illusion of the filtered world. Let me give this to you in a very clear example and I've already paid Avery her royalties to use her in my sermon. I gave it to her dollar this morning. When Avery was born, I, I had the privilege and the honor to see her born in the hospital. Three weeks later, I deployed. I got on a plane to deploy to Afghanistan, not to return for another eight months as I served our country in the global war on terror. 
And here's what happened. My, my wife was told in our pre-deployment classes, my wife was told, don't send them any problems. Don't send them any bad pictures because they got enough to worry about over there with their lives and the lives of our Marines. So Katie would send me pictures of Avery when she was three weeks, one month, two months. And I'm telling you, I believe my child was the perfect child. She never cried. She never threw temper tantrums. She slept all night long. My wife, I felt like she was like, oh my goodness, she is so spoiled with this beautiful angel from heaven. And that was the picture I had until I got home. And let me tell you, my world was rocked. Everything changed. All of a sudden, this happy little girl cried and threw temper tantrums. I even have a video of her throwing a temper tantrum because mommy wouldn't let her go play in the garage with daddy's tools. What happened? What happened is that what Katie was told to present me, which was very well done, was not the actual picture of the real life. That I realized in that moment that my daughter, our daughter, that she had sinned that needed to be reconciled through a savior. That she needed the hope of the gospel as an image bearer just as much as I do and anyone else in this world does. And so I'm telling you, if you can figure out, if you understand the social media illusion, then you understand what the author of Hebrews is talking about in verses 11 through 19. That the Old Testament, that the Levitical priesthood served as a a means for the people to experience and access God, but it didn't do it justice. That it failed to give completeness and fullness to their lives. In other words, what they needed and what the law showed them that they needed is they, they needed a savior. They realized when they looked at the Levitical priesthood that there was a necessariness to Jesus's presence on earth, to Jesus's incarnation, to Jesus's sacrificial death and to Jesus's glorious resurrection. And when you understand Jesus as that kind of savior, it gives you hope to draw near and to access God more completely. Look at me, if you will, so I can show you this in verses 11 through 19. So read along with me in your text. It says this. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest. Not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. If you, if you write in your Bible, I would, I would highlight that by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. 
Let me start off by explaining what the author means by this word perfection. We see the word perfection found in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable, we also see this same conjugate of the word written in verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. And so what does the author mean when he uses this word perfection? Well, the idea of this word in the original Greek language, which is what the New Testament was written in, this word perfection means completeness. It means fullness. Or it can mean, as we have translated it, perfection. But it gives this, this idea of a, of a total, complete, and full reality. And obviously what the author is saying here is that the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament was unable to bring this complete full perfection to the lives of those who were called upon, who called upon the Lord. In other words, that this idea says at the end, I think verse 19 gives us a, a reality or gives us a definition for perfection when it says this. But on the one hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Here's what the author is saying about this word perfection. He's saying while, while the Old Testament allowed the people to access God, it did not allow them to access God as fully as Jesus does for us. That you today, that you and I today as New Testament Christians living right now, when we put our faith in Jesus, faith in Jesus and His work, that we are now completely, perfectly, and fully able to access God. That's what he's talking about. So the, the Old Testament, it's not that they couldn't do it. It's just they couldn't do it completely and fully until Jesus arrives on the scene. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to see two truths from the scripture to help us understand our complete and total access to God by faith in Jesus. The first thing I want you to see is the necessity for Jesus. That as we look at our lives, we have a necessity to Put our faith in Christ. So, so let me start by verse 11. It says, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What is the law talking about there? So here's what you got to do. Today we need to put our brains into action. I hope you got your coffee. If not, we can bring you some. One of the things that Jesus tells us is that Jesus tells us we need to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our Mind. So this morning, thank you, Pastor Kyle. Thank you, Laura. It's getting a little bit warm in here. Makes you thankful for your salvation. Amen. One of the things that he's talking about here is he says we, we today, Jesus is saying we got to love him with, by even thinking rightly about him. So so when we talk about the law, what is what is he talking about? What does he mean by this word law? Now, I don't have time to get to the intricacies of all the law, but I'm going to give you a basic summary of the law. So in the, in, the, in the Old Testament, we have what we call interpretive categories of law. Laws in which we are able to interpret the Old Testament to help us understand what the laws are. So, for example, the question that many people ask is like, how come Kyle and I, we don't dress in like high priestly robes? I mean, why don't we dress up like we're supposed to from Levitical law, like have these robes on? How come we're not, how come Kyle and I during our work week, we're not making sacrifices for all of you? Why aren't we sacrificing turtle doves and pigeons, goats and bulls and lambs? Why don't we do that? How, how come when the Old Testament talks about uh, not allowing, like building fences around the roof of your house, how come we don't do that as Christians? Why don't we follow that Old Testament law? Or when it tells you in Deuteronomy that you're to take a rebellious child, a rebellious son before the elders, and if the elders find rebellion in him and he won't repent of his sin, that they're to stone him. Why don't we do that? 
Why all of a sudden? What, what in the world is going on? Well, the problem is we have, a, we have to figure out how to interpret. We have to have put interpretive categories into the Old Testament law to understand which is still applicable to us and which of those that are not, which of those that I'm going to argue have been fulfilled in Jesus. Now, let me just say this as a public caveat. If you ever want me to come with you to sacrifice deer during deer season, I am always available as your pastor to do so. There's three types of laws in the Old Testament that we use. The first law of the Old Testament is what we call the moral law. So think Ten Commandments. And the moral law, I believe, is still relevant today. That we are to still today hold to the moral law of God. And in fact, Jesus teaches on the moral law and gives it even more meaning in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. He takes the moral law of God and he makes it deeper. So think Ten Commandments. I believe that the moral law is a reflection of who God is. And so when God says, you shall not murder, God says, ultimately, I am the God of life. And so if you want to be like me, then you honor life in every aspect of, its, of, its, uh, of where it is in, creative, in creation. Whether it's in the, in the womb or going towards the tomb. We are to honor life because that is who God is. God is the God of life. And so the moral law is something that we still take upon ourselves today. Jesus tells us, if you... If you love me, you will obey what I command you. And in order to command, and the command is to follow Jesus in the moral law, which he clearly never broke as our perfect sacrifice. But there are two other laws in the Old Testament. There's the civil law. And these were laws that God gave to the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel would take these laws. And these are actually the way that they applied the moral law to their current national or to their national state. So we call the civil. That's why we don't put fences around our house or the roofs of our house. But the third law is the Levitical law, the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law is what we see taking place and happening in the temple. And so this is what he's talking about here. He's talking about the ceremonial law of the Old Testament in verses 11 through 19. How do we know he's talking about the ceremonial law? Look what he says in verse 11. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, that Levitical priesthood gives us the, the category for understanding he's talking ceremonial laws, what the priests were designed to do. He said, for under it, the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? In other words, what the author is arguing, he's saying, if the priesthood of the Levites was able to save you completely and give you full access to God, then why would Jesus have even needed to come? And the answer was, well, he wouldn't. So why did Jesus come? He said, because Jesus came to completely fulfill that law. Jesus came completely to perfect it so that he could bring us complete and full access to God that the Old Testament people could not get because the Old Testament priesthood was unable to get them there. Verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood. So no longer do we have the Levitical priesthood. Now we have the priesthood of Jesus. He says there is necessarily a change in the law. What does he mean by that? So here's the reality. The reason why Pastor Kyle and I aren't sacrificing bulls and goats and lambs. And we, but we are available during deer season. Is the fact that Jesus is the ultimate sacrificial lamb. That was fulfilled in Christ. When John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he says, look, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The idea is that the sacrificial, the Old Testament, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was designed to point us to an ultimate sacrifice. And that ultimate sacrifice is Jesus. That Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, that the Lamb of God who died for our sins, who spilt all of His blood for us to pay our sin debt is sufficient from here on out. That's why you don't need it. That's why the law changed. No longer do we have to make altar sacrifices because Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice. Think of it in terms of Abraham and Isaac. When Abraham was going to slay his only son at the command of the Lord, God said, stop. But when God's only son was about to go to a cross and be slain for the sins of the world, he said, go. Jesus, at the end of it, he says, it is finished. I have done it. I have paved the way for you to be saved from every sin you have ever committed. That the Lamb of God is the ultimate sacrifice. That's why there was this change in the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. It had been fulfilled once and for all in Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection. Verse 13, for the one of whom things are spoken belong to another tribe. For which no one has ever served at the altar. So what he's talking about here is the Old Testament. Uh, when you have the 12 tribes of Israel. Within those 12 tribes you have the tribe of Levi. And Levi's tribe was designed to be the priesthood. They were designed to be the priests of the temple. So only Levites served in this role. Does anybody know where the king was supposed to come out of? What tribe the king was supposed to come out of? Judah, if you said Judah, praise you, you have warmed my heart. That is correct. The kingship came out of Judah. Where did Jesus come from? The tribe of Judah. So here we have Jesus coming out of the the tribe of Judah. Jesus is coming out of the king tribe. But all of a sudden, but all of a sudden, now he's also able to serve as a priest from the tribe of Levi. How does that happen? For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, the tribe of Judah. From which no one has ever served at the altar. Because that's the job of the Levites. Verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with the tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. But then what is he going to do? Then he's going to point us to Melchizedek. This is the point. Jesus serves as both of our, as our king, priest, and savior. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of what the priesthood was designed to show us. This week in our men's equip, yes, that is a shameless plug for men's equip at 6 a.m. on Tuesday mornings. Right down there, we will have coffee for you available for free. And fellowship and communication and the Bible, all free. We were talking about the sacrificial system. We we're like, man, could you imagine how much blood must have been sacrificed in the temple on a daily basis? Like, do you imagine how much those Leviticus priests would have had to work? They worked a lot. They spilt a lot of blood day in and day out. Why does God show us that in the Old Testament? Because he shows us the depravity of our sin. He shows us the depravity of who we really are. That that's how much blood it took in order to get you access, to get you grace with God from the Levitical system. It was designed to point us to Jesus, to show us our greatest need. I always pray over our children, Lord, show them the depths of their sin. And I'm praying this over you this week. Lord, show them the depths of their sin. Because only when you see the depths of your sin are you able to see your need for Jesus. 
only when you see how messed up you really are is that when you begin to go, oh my goodness, I need Jesus. I need this Lamb of God that Jeremy has talked about this morning. I need this Jesus who takes my sin away. And the Old Testament is designed to point you to your need. To your greatest need. That's why Jesus, the first truth is Jesus is necessary for our salvation. Jesus is necessary for us. Now, how does this apply to your life? Well, I'm going to apply it to your life through evangelism. You see, one of the things that we believe here at Center Church, one of our values that we've been praying over as a staff and as an advisory team, one of our values is that we desire to commission every partner to go into the world and share the gospel. We want to commission every partner. That's why, if you ever wondered why at the end of every service we say you are sent, it is our commissioning service to you. We are saying you are sent into the world to be the salt in a world of darkness, and salt in a world of decay, and light in a world of darkness. That's what we say you're sent. We're commissioning you to go and to live your lives in such a way that people see Jesus both in word and deed. And so one of the things that we want you to do is we want you to evangelize. Evangelism means to share the gospel with people. Now, there's two types of people in our world. There's two types of people that you are going to come in contact with this week. And let me tell you something. I'm not the biggest fan of Halloween, but I am a fan of people coming to my house to get candy. Because what they don't know is they're not just coming to my house to get candy. They're coming to my house to get some Jesus. So two types of people come into our Come into our midst. Those who are broken. Francis Schaeffer, he used to say, he spent 50 minutes. He would spend an hour with one person. He would spend 50 minutes hearing from them. Listening to their story. Asking them questions. And he would spend the last 10 minutes responding with the gospel. Because he could figure out who they are and where they were based off of the stories that they told. And as you're building relationships and talking to people who are lost, if they come to you broken... I know I messed up. I can't figure out what's wrong with me. I can't figure out why I still have this addiction. I can't figure out why I still watch this show or I get on my computer and do these things or I can't figure out why I still drink the way I do or party the way I do or I can't figure out why I still love money as much as I do. I can't figure it out, but I know I messed up. You just go straight to the gospel. They know they're messed up. They know they're broken. So you just give them Jesus. Show them how he reconciles and heals their life. When I talk to people who are the most broken, I just say, I don't need to give them any law. I just need to give them straight gospel. Because they know that they're, they know what they're messed up. It's the other people that are the most difficult. It's the people who grew up religious that are the most difficult to evangelize. J.D. Greer, one of my pastors, likes to say this. He says, you know, in the Bible Belt, he said, you've got to get people lost before you can get them saved. Because they believe they're saved. Well, I grew up in a Christian home. My grandma was a Christian. I go to church during Christmas and Easter. I believe because my mom and dad taught me to believe. They made me believe. Earlier on, people would go to the church because that was the socially acceptable thing to do. Made you look good in community if you went to church. And these are the people that we call the religious unbelievers. And what the beautiful thing about the Old Testament is that the Old Testament law helps them to see their sin. 
So the people who think that they're believed, but really have not put their trust in the work of Jesus, because they're putting their trust in the work of themselves and their religion, I go straight to the Old Testament law. I said, let's take a look and see how you do here. It reminds me of the story. Do you remember when, uh, when Jesus and the rich young ruler comes to Jesus? And Jesus is like, hey, you want to follow me? This is what you got to do. You know, like honor your father and mother. You know, keep the commandments. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Like, don't do those things. And he's like, done. Done. I'm ready to be your father. And then he turns and he looks at the guy and says this. He says, okay, now go sell all that you have. And then you can be my disciple. Do you remember what the rich young ruler did? He walked away sad. And said he walked away sad because he had much wealth and he didn't want to give it up. What Jesus pointed out is like, look, you look good on the outside. But the problem is not what you're doing on the outside. The problem is what's going on in your heart. And your heart says you love more money more than you'll ever love the Messiah. That's what Jesus hits him with. Jesus hits him with a heart problem. And as we evangelize people who are religious, we've got to hit them with the heart problem. And the way that we do that is through the Old Testament, through the law. The law is like a, it's not a filter. Religion acts like a filter on, on Instagram where I see all the imperfections. And so religion's going to cover up those imperfections to make me look perfect. The Old Testament law, what it's beautiful for doing is it, it's beautiful for opening up and removing the filter so that we can truly see our depravity. And when you and I see our depravity, or when we're talking to people who believe that their religion will save them, when, when they see their depravity, at that moment, we move them to Jesus. Remember what I told you? Once you see the depths of your sin, then you see your need for the Savior. That's why J.D. says, get them lost before you get them saved. And you're going to meet those people out there this week. And the idea is you say, let me show you the depravity. Let me show you where your sin is according to Scripture. But then I don't just want to leave you there. See, one of the problems of the church is we like to point out sin. Right? Well, look at me all spiritual. You know I'm talking, what I'm talking about. We like to point out sin. And we point out sin, but we never point them to the Savior. We're like, you're so messed up. You're so messed up. You're so messed up. Goodbye. Okay, I got I messed up. What do I do? Let me point you to Jesus. You don't do anything. He's already done it for you. That's the point of verse 11 through 14. It shows us the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood shows us the necessity of Jesus for salvation. And that's how you evangelize. Secondly, what it shows us is it shows us that we have hope. Jesus gives us hope through his resurrection to draw near to God. He gives us hope through his resurrection to draw near to God. Verse 15 The author says this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. What is the author saying here? The author is showing us a couple of things. Remember, last week, Melchizedek served as a biblical example of Jesus' priesthood. And so recall that there was only four verses with Melchizedek in it. We don't know where Melchizedek came from. We don't know how he died. And the author of Hebrews says, you don't have to worry about all that stuff because he is designed to point you to Jesus, that he did not become a a high priest. Melchizedek didn't become a high priest and the king of Salem because of his genealogy, because of his heritage, or as I've heard it said here, uh, who you are from home. God sovereignly appointed Melchizedek king and priest 
out of his goodness and his grace, who he, who meets Abraham after returning from the field of battle. But listen to me, that's exactly what he's saying Jesus did too. God sovereignly and graciously sent his son to serve as king and priest. Not based off of his genealogy. He was born of Mary and Joseph, who was a carpenter. They weren't high class status. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus is kind of plain. Not the guy you would look for in a Messiah. But God sent his son, Jesus, to show him the power of God's grace through his resurrection. Look what it says here. But by the power of an indestructible life. This is how Jesus became our high priest. I think the author here is talking about Jesus' resurrection. The indestructible life of Jesus means Jesus was resurrected from the grave. Listen, brothers and sisters, the resurrection is paramount to our belief. Paul says if there is no resurrection, then we have no hope. We're the people to be most pitied. Because that means Jesus is probably a liar. But there is a resurrection. We believe in an empty tomb, do we not? We believe, I know you believe, because every April, what do we celebrate on the Christian calendar? Easter. It's like the Super Bowl for Christians. That is our day. Because that means Jesus is still alive and he's ruling and he's reigning. And his resurrection proves to you and me that he defeated our sin. That his, that his sacrifice was accepted by God for us. And it shows because he's alive. It also shows that he has, he has taken away the sting of death. That for the believer we don't worry about death because that stinger has been removed. Because Jesus has removed it. But it also shows us that Jesus is victorious. That he defeated our enemy, Satan, and the demons. Jesus is a priest because of his resurrection for us. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection is huge for our faith. And what is the resurrection designed to do? Well, the author says it's designed to give us hope so that we can draw near to God. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand... A former commandment, the Levitical priesthood, is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But, on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. That hope that is introduced to the power of an indestructible life through which we draw near to God. Here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. You remember in the Old Testament, the, the high priest would have to go and he would have to cleanse himself and he would have to sacrifice for his own sins because he knew he was messed up. And then after that, he would have to go and he would have to sacrifice for the sins of the people. And one of the ways he would do that, once a year, he would be allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God. I heard a, I heard a preacher one time say that what they used to do is they used to take a rope and they used to tie it to the high priest. That way, if he died in there because he came into the full presence of God, they could drag his body out. I don't know if that's true. I didn't do my research on him, but I think it sounds like a pretty good idea. But do you know what Jesus did in his indestructible life? What happens the moment he says it is finished? That veil is torn in two. Through Jesus, our high priest, we have full and complete access to God. Is that not joyfully amazing? Jesus says, I've torn, the I've torn that. You don't need a priest anymore. You don't need to go through that priest because I'm your priest. You go through me. And if you go through me, I give you full access to my father. As a Christian, we have full access to God. 
When people, I, I, you know, I think it's great that people, when they go through struggles in life, that people, when they go through pain in life, that the first people that they want to talk to is Pastor Kyle. Pastor Kyle, everybody shake your head. Just make sure we're aware of that today. And I think that's great. You should go to Pastor Kyle when you have your problems. But the first person you should be going to is Jesus. Because he's the only one that can truly handle your problems. He's the high priest that you have full access to. And God in his grace has given us his word to reveal more of who he is. And God in his grace has poured out his spirit into every single one of you, giving you the full presence and power of God within you. Brothers and sisters, we have full access to God through Jesus. And the resurrection says you have hope to believe that he is the doorway to God. The only way to God. And through him, hope is introduced now because what we can do is we can actually draw near to God. So what does this text do for your life? If you believe in Jesus, do you believe in that power? Do you believe in the gospel that God, through his grace, has given you access to the Father through the Son and the empowering and dwelling of the Spirit? If so, then, how does that change the way that you spend time with God? Oh, now we're going to get personal, huh? Yes, we are. Welcome to Center Church if you're a guest. Think about this. If you have complete and total access to God, then how much should you pray in your daily life? Prayer is our time. Prayer is our time when we come to our Father with everything that is on our heart. We come to our Father through the Son to be His child, to to pray with a childlike faith. My disciples, my three disciples just got done reading Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life, and I would highly commend it to you. A praying life is a, a life, Paul Miller talks about how we come and approach our Father who is in heaven because of the grace and love of Jesus who sits at his right hand. You see, I think that people, when they get to those moments of struggle, that's when they start to pray. And I think that's a good thing. I think God uses our struggles and our suffering to get us to pray. But how about this, Christian? If we have full access to God, then why don't we pray before our suffering show up? What does your prayer life look like? Does it show that you believe you have complete and total access to God or does it not? Because maybe you don't have one or maybe yours is very ritualistic. As a parent in this room, let me tell you how important prayer is for parenting. And this is also a plug for November 18th and 19th. You want to be here for our parenting workshop. And I'm giving some good plugs today. I'm excited. As a parent who understands the gospel... I understand that I might be able to change my children's behavior, but I can't change what's going on inside of them. Paul Miller, as I was reading his book to keep up with my disciples, it reminded, he reminded me of, instead of lecturing our children, why don't we just pray for our children? When our children start throwing temper tantrums, when our, when our children start throwing fit, when our, when our children start to be led away or led astray, why don't we go to them and we put our hands on them and say, Lord, I can't do anything with this child, but you can Calm their spirit. Calm their soul. Help them to follow you. Help them to abide in you. So that their fruit may be shown to be one of Jesus' fillness. I've done that with one of our children recently. I've stopped actually communicating with him. And I just started praying for him. 
And when he gets into one of those moods, I go and I say, Lord, just help him. Help him to find peace. Help him to find grace. Help him to find love. Help him to live for you in this moment. You know what happens? Man, I watch God work in this young man's life like this. It used to be daddy used to, you know, lay the smack down. And it always just got more and more tense. So I just stopped and I said, Lord, just you do what you can do. I I can't do anything. I need your access. I need your power to do the work in his life. How about you? When when you go through seasons of life, do you come to God with anything that is on your heart? If you're angry, go to God with your angry. Just start praying. Start journaling it out. If you're upset, go to God with what you're you're, If you're hurt, go to God with your hurt. If your spouse is doing something that kind of makes you unhappy, go to God with what makes you unhappy. I think Katie's actually been praying for me lately. I was in my quiet time this morning before preaching and like God was like, Jeremy, you're very selfish. I'm like, what? I am not. Okay, yeah, I'm a little bit. And I started praying through it and I'm like, I am. I'm not, I'm willing to serve people in the church, but how much am I willing to serve my family? Am I willing to be like Jesus to wrap that towel around my waist and get down and wash their feet? Well, that came out of my prayer time. I think that came out of Katie's prayer time because this morning, goodness gracious, Colin, this morning, this morning when I went there, I'm like, baby, I'm sorry for being so selfish. And she just hugged me and she's like, I just love God. (laughs) But that's what prayer does. Prayer gives you access to God so that he'll change your life and change the lives of those around you. Number two, what about your time drawing near to God through the word? This is how Jesus communicates to us. He's given us his word and the Holy Spirit illuminates the text for us to live our lives according to what it says. So my question is, how often do we go to it? How often do we come and say, God, I have full access to you. I need to know more of who you are. Reveal yourself to me. Show me your glory and help me move my feet. Statistics show that most people in our room have actually not read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, most people in this room probably don't spend anywhere from five less minutes in their scriptures per week. Why? If we have access to God, then don't we want to hear from him? Don't we want to be like, God, I want to be your child and I want to continue to grow to become more like you. Do we take reading our scriptures seriously? Because we know that this is the way that we have true access to who God is and what he's done. Lastly, one of the other ways we have access to God is by being a part of his family. The church family, the church body, your brothers and your sisters in Christ. It's very important that you're a part of God's family because God uses his family to also speak truth into your life. And to help you get access to God. I mean, everybody knows that Thanksgiving and Christmas is coming up, right? And we're all planning and getting ready for Thanksgiving, Christmas, holidays, all that good stuff. Spending time with our family. But how come we don't take that amount of seriousness when it comes to our church family? To being intentional and spending time coming and worshiping at the local church with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, I get it. Our family, our church families, all church families, and they, they, they can be a bit dirty and messy, right? 
Nathan said it this a couple of weeks ago. I thought it was hilarious because I think it's totally true. He said, if you don't realize, if you don't know who the crazy uncle is in your family, it's probably because you're the crazy uncle. And listen, we all have a church that has the crazy uncles in it, right? But this is where God grooms us and equips us and changes us and challenges us. And he uses the local body to equip us to go out and do the work of ministry. And so if we have God as our father, then why would that not turn to say, I want to love his bride. And be a part of what God is doing in the local church. I want to be a part of the people of God. This is my family. Not family because we're from the same blood but family because we've been bought with the same blood. And that's the blood of Jesus. And I, I can't imagine not being with you. I can't imagine not making right decisions on Saturday night to get here on Sunday morning to be with the family of God. Now, I'm not saying you've got to be here every time the doors are open. Next week, I won't be here. I'll be on a flight to North Carolina. But that doesn't mean I don't desire to be with you. Because I want to be with the family of God because this is who God has given me as my family. And that God gives me more access to him through the family. So how do we respond to a message like this? I think there's three ways to respond this morning. Number one, maybe you're here today and you're starting to realize the brokenness of your life. You're realizing there's sin deep in there. And today you realize, "I, I need Jesus to be my savior. Well, if that's you, is after this service, I want you to go talk to Pastor Kyle or myself, or you can talk to Brett, or you can talk to Michael Anconi, you can talk to Katie, you can talk to Haley, well, pretty much any partner in this room. You're free to talk to. They know the gospel. They've been to basics class. And they will walk you through what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But number two, if you're in here this morning and you're like, Jeremy, I see that I know that I have access to God through Jesus And here's what I want to challenge you with. Two things. Number one, I want to challenge you this morning to spend five minutes additional in your prayer time and study of God's word this week, every single day. So, for example, if you do zero, then that means tomorrow you're going to do five minutes of prayer and reading the Bible. That's it. Five minutes. That's two times it takes you to brush your teeth. Because according to the dental association, you're supposed to brush your teeth for two minutes at a time. Five minutes. If you're here and you do prayer time for 10 minutes, then this week I want you to do 15 minutes of prayer and reading your Bible. Add five minutes and see what God does as you gain access to him through the spiritual disciplines. Number three, maybe you're here this morning and I want you to commit to the gathering. Two two times a month, just commit two times, November and December, to commit to being a part of what God is doing during this, this time on Sunday mornings. To get access to God through the family. Through his family, the bride of Christ. But if you say, Jeremy, I've already got that. I got my two, check mark. Then here's what I want you to do. Then I want you to attend one MC, November and December. I don't care which one you attend. You can attend the men's one, the women's one. You can attend the family, the two family ones. I want you to attend one MC, one missional community for November and December. Well, Jeremy, I already do that. In fact, I do it three times a month. Okay, well then here's what I want you to do. I want you to commit to equip. I want you to admit to our equip, our men's equip or our women's equip. Men's meet on Tuesday morning. Women's meet on, Tuesday, on Thursday after, at lunch and Thursday at 6. And say, Jeremy, I'm going to commit this, the rest of this, these next two months to going once a week to our women or men's equip if I can. And see what God will do with your life. Use those as means which God can give you means of grace in order to access him more fully through the Son, Jesus Christ. 
So here's what I want us to do. I want everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes. This morning, if that's you, if you say, Jeremy, today I'm willing to commit either to five minutes of prayer and reading my Bible, five minutes additional to prayer and reading my Bible, I want you to raise your hand right now. Okay? Put your hands down. If you're here and you say, today I'm going to commit to two gatherings, November and December, I want you to raise your hand. Good. Put your hands down. If you're here and you say, today, Jeremy, I'm going to commit to one MC on November and one MC in December, raise your hand. Woo! Our MCs are going to be packed. Host homes, get ready. They're coming. Y'all didn't know there was an encouraging response today. Put your hands down. Lastly, you say, Jeremy, today I'm going to commit to an equip. Equip group. Raise your hand. Yes. 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 Put your hands down. Father, I pray for those responses that just took place today. Father, I pray that as we see the necessity of Jesus as our priest, as we see the hope that we have in his resurrection that gives us complete and full access to you, Lord, I pray that it would be a a life-changing moment, a life-changing thought that penetrates into our hearts that says, I want to spend more time in the presence of God. Either prayer or the word or with the faith family so that I can continue to draw near to the throne of grace. And receive confidence to help me in my time of need, as Hebrews 4.16 teaches. Father, for all those that committed, I pray that they would go through on these commitments. So that you can continue to do a mighty work in them and through them. For the glory of your name, which, which we see in Philippians, is the name above all names. And that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess him as Lord. And Father, that you would use your presence in our lives to go into this world. To go tomorrow... And to share the gospel with those who are broken and even those who are religious. That we can point them to their need for Jesus to be their Savior. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.